afternoon, seven investors, and welcome to the Friday. That's right. It is Friday, and it's a holiday weekend edition of Seven Investing Now. My name is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program. I am being joined today by Steve Symington. Steve, we've been on a marathon. We've been doing members-only calls since 10 a.m., and we have talked a lot. How are you holding up? You got coffee? You got, uh, you got a Red Bull in front of you? Yeah, I, I changed a tire to start the day. Uh, my, my mother-in-law had a, a flat tire, so I changed it and then I rushed back for the call. And those are the best, aren't they? I love the, the subscriber calls. They are fun. And of course, to go to those calls, you have to be a member. So if you'd like to join us at 7investing, it is, of course, 7investing.com slash subscribe. You give us $17 a month or $170 a year, and you get our best seven picks each month. You get the members calls. You get all sorts of access. But of course, you are here for 7investing now, and we are so happy you're here. We would like your comments. We're going to talk about investing in space. That's our that's our top story today. And this is touched off by uh, Kathy Woods and ARK Investing. They are launching uh, a space ETF. But Steve, investing in space has long been on our radar. How do you feel about it in a broad sense? Uh, in in a, a broad, open, uh, universal sense, maybe. I, space is a really interesting opportunity, and it's it's kind of amazing to me that we haven't talked a lot about it uh, more in recent years. And, and I love it. You know, I, I've written old articles on, uh, you know, the 3D printers and food and things that can be used, you know, used in space. But now uh, we have, you know, space exploration and, uh, and low orbit travel becoming a possibility with companies like Virgin Galactic. And, and uh, so I, I'm really excited about this. It's very early days uh, and, uh, and I think the world is becoming really excited, especially as companies like, uh, Virgin Galactic and SpaceX start to make, uh, their launches and their progress more public. And, uh, and we actually make tangible progress toward this actually being a real thing specifically with the travel, but, um, adjacent opportunities are cool too. We'll talk about those as well, but. So we're, we're going to get into some real numbers here, but one of the things with space is, is I would say, be careful. So yesterday, Virgin Galactic, on the news of this new ETF, which is not the, uh, the space exploration ETF from ARC, has not talked about what it's going to purchase, but basically there's so little directly in this space that Virgin Galactic was up about 20% yesterday. And yeah. I say be careful, because right now, Virgin Galactic sells $180,000 18-minute pretend rides into space. I say pretend because basically you're in a low orbit, you're you're weightless for about three minutes. To me, this is like an absolute like rich guy fool kind of thing to do. But that's not really where their opportunity is. The opportunity is actually in travel. Let me give you some numbers. These all come from UBS. Uh, in theory, there could be $20 billion that in this market competing with long-term airlines flight. So right now, uh, it takes, say, 22 hours to fly from New York to Sydney. I might be overestimating or underestimating by an hour there. SpaceX can use its Starship rocket to, to fly about 100 people around the world in minutes. New York to Shanghai in 39 minutes, rather than the 15 hours it takes to do that by airplane. So let's look at the business opportunity there. These are UBS numbers. UBS estimates that there are more than 150 million passengers a year that fly routes longer than 10 hours. Those routes saw 527,000 people uh, that routes that, on an airplane that an average of 309 seats. 
just a tiny percentage of those, if they move to the much more expensive space travel. So think of it this way, Steve. If it was $1,200 to fly New York to Shanghai and it takes you a day, or $12,000 to do it and you could be there in minutes, there's going to be a pretty significant market for the quicker flight, right? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of those things that uh, I think people are underestimating. You know, there's going to be a, a, a group of, of fairly wealthy people uh, right off the bat who are willing to pay for these very expensive flights from, from Virgin Galactic, for example, right away, um, just for the pure novelty of doing so. But when it actually uh, creates a tangible benefit for especially, say, a business person uh, who could save themselves a day or someone who just doesn't want to spend that extra day but has the money and uh, and and wants to maybe enjoy the the supplementary novelty uh, of uh, a low orbit space flight. I think this could be really big. And uh, the big opportunity comes is when it reaches that inflection point where the cost actually makes sense. And and that's sort of the the Tesla esque model of doing things, where they start out with a very expensive roadster and they use that to fund a uh, you know kind of a, a still kind of expensive. Uh, larger vehicle, uh, and then you eventually end up, you know, into uh, like the Model Three, uh, where they're getting it around thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars. They're talking about now a twenty-five thousand dollar car. Uh, they're going to do something similar, is to use these really expensive flights right off the bat to fund, uh, to help fund and uh, create something that's more sustainable over the long term. So that's the real opportunity for companies like this in in travel, at least. Yeah, and it's important to note that space is, its a call it a near far-off opportunity. Because <laughs> right now, what Virgin Galactic is going to offer is something that's really a niche. But 10 years from now, it is believable that they'll have those $2,500 kind of around-the-world flights. 5% of the existing business is $20 billion. That seems to me very attainable. I know my brother, a big-time sports executive, he'll fly to, say, you know, New York to uh, Qatar, and he'll stay have one of those like pods where you could sleep on the plane and every those are thousands of dollars tickets but it's worth it if he's closing multi-million dollar deals the money's going to be there but steve the next part of this and it's just a niche uh, it's going to be a three billion dollar business by 2030 space tourism i know as a kid I assumed we'd have Moon Disney World by now, and we do not. I really want to go and be weightless and get to do all sorts of, you know, I want to dunk over you, all the things we could do. Do you think 2030 <laughs> is optimistic for space tourism? Uh, no, I, I don't think that's optimistic at all. You know, even just last year, uh, we had folks at Virgin Galactic saying, you know, we want to have people uh, on these, these space tours uh, within months, not years. Uh, and, you know, we had some hiccups when it came to uh, that last uh, flight from uh, Virgin Galactic where they kind of had to successfully land uh, after the rocket engine failed to ignite. There was a safety system that went into play, but uh, there'll be little hiccups along the way. But I think 2030 is, is more than uh, rational um, and maybe even uh, a little bit conservative uh, when it comes to actual uh, a $3 billion a year space uh, tourism market. So. We're going to be talking adjacent space plays, but uh, Gilbrand1218, we are not going to be talking about UFOs. I guess if there are uh, UFOs out there and some information comes out, that might change things. Uh, you know, Who knows? Maybe we're two years away from being part of the Star Trek Galactic Alliance. Um, Technically, but... we're talking about UFOs now, so that was a self-fulfilling question. I guess. <laughs> but, but it's one of those where I'm not making investing decisions, but uh, we appreciate <laughs> the spirit of the question. And of course... <laughs> 
Get your questions and comments in. You don't have to just ask us about space. We're going to be doing some interesting stuff in what we're watching. We're going to be talking some really ridiculous stories in the home stretch. So feel free to ask us questions. Get your comments in. UBS expects the broader space industry, which is worth about $400 billion today, that it will double to $805 billion by 2000 by 2030. We talked about travel. We talked about tourism. Uh, eventually, there's going to be interstellar opportunities. I think anyone who's read a sci-fi book sort of knows that the future of mankind is someplace else. We don't know where that someplace else is yet. But Steve, I'm going to throw out some right. adjacent opportunities, and I'm going to ask you to comment on them. Most of these exist now. Uh, first one is, of course, artificial intelligence. Sure. Um, there's uh, a lot uh, as, as far as you know AI uh, I mean, and AI is one of those industries that's already permeating everything. Uh, but AI, as it specifically pertains to space travel, you know, as far as assistance go um, for people who are up there, uh, that can help help guide decisions and uh, machine learning that can help improve models uh, and and streamline efficiency. Uh, there's a lot out there uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence and, and applying that. Uh, to the space industry specifically, but uh, and also data analysis and uh, and, and streamlining models and uh, and yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to efficiency and the ability to improve what's there uh, autonomously. So that that'll be interesting. So data. there's an awful lot of logistics in space travel and keeping it safe. And frankly, you know, if we're right now, if we were sending you know a colonization team to Mars, that yeah. team's going to have to sleep for some of that trip, uh, and AI is going to help. Robotics. Um, yeah. Obviously, this is an area. I look at robotics in the U.S. And aside from my vacuum, and aside from factory, obviously Amazon warehouses are using robots. Grocery stores are using robots for industry. But the vast majority of the robot market is actually just kind of novelty, and that's not necessarily going to be true in space. Steve, what's the uh, what's the market for robots going forward in the space industry? Um. You know, there. I guess you could consider, you know, self-driving vehicles, robotics, and stuff. And and uh, we all know, you know, Elon Musk has his uh, his the the verticals as far as Tesla goes with self-driving uh, vehicles. But as, as space exploration uh, becomes more of a thing, you know, we already have uh, robots on different planets that that. Uh, that are around there there is an industry for that uh potentially actually elon musk just a couple of days ago said the robot future is coming he responded to an interesting little uh logistics robot uh and sparked some some interest in whether spacex and tesla would be uh expanding into that as well but uh, obviously there's a place for robotics of all different kinds uh whether it, it means uh Know, devices to to handle um, you know things outside uh, maybe not necessarily directly related to space in the near term uh, on a broad commercial basis uh, but there are several robotics companies uh, I think that are worth uh, paying attention to uh, out there both on the industrial side uh, and on the commercial side so uh, that's uh, very broad. Uh, and as far as space travel goes, uh, I think commercially, uh, maybe not so much of an opportunity to dive into for investors today, but uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Steve, I'm going to field the next one. It's 3D printing. So mm -hmm. I'm bullish on 3D printing. I think we had this whole boom where everyone looked at it as investable and then it kind of didn't play out. But here's the reality. If you're going to space and you have your, your whatever, your machine that turns, you know, pulls water out of the air and that breaks, you're not going to be able to go to Home Depot to get a part. You're not going to be able to order it from part supply warehouse or whatever it is. You're going to need to make it. And 3D printing allows the 
the ability for you to just have an enormous amount of data, you know, different blueprints, different plans, and print those items you need. And this technology already exists. So Amazon has a patent. I've talked about this many times for a truck full of 3D printers that drives around. And when some little part in your washing machine breaks that would take two weeks for your guy to get, you can order that part. Maybe you'll pay $12 for it instead of the $3 it would have cost from, you know, whoever made your washing machine, but you'll get your washing machine fixed. Multiply this to space and you're going to have everything from, oh, hey, we need some mugs to drink our coffee in and we need lids for those mugs because the gravity is lower here or higher or whatever it is. Anything you could think of, you're going to be able to bring with you and your ability to make it. I think 3D printing is going to be absolutely essential to exploration, to space. And I actually think it's going to be more important than it has been in just the regular where we live now uh, because it's so adaptable. And I do think there will be investing opportunities here. I just don't know where those are yet. And we see your questions. We're going to take some of them after we get through this. Steve, your thoughts on 3D printing. Um, So yeah, I mean, 3D printing as far as creating parts and stuff, especially when you're in space, uh, but also uh, food. There was an article I wrote several years ago about uh, 3D printable food. And uh, it's not like, you know, you'll be printing a steak out or something, but uh, there are little systems out yeah, there. Yeah, that, that, that's coming too. I mean, yeah, yeah there is that. And, uh, you know, so there, there's, there's interesting technology there, but uh, also, you know, a matter of like, you know, combining powders and oils and, and those sorts of things for sustainable food. Um, so 3D printing is really, really interesting. Uh, obviously, uh, it's just still so early. And so there. Uh, yeah. There's all sorts of other areas that are going to be space investable. Agriculture. You know, we, we saw Matt Damon on Mars, uh, you know, adapting and growing potatoes. You're going to have to figure things like that out. And that's going to apply on Earth. Uh, it sounds ridiculous. But when you when you go through living with the land on Epcot and it shows you some of the vertical growing techniques and some of the other things, uh, a buddy of mine has a company uh, where you can buy essentially a, uh, uh, you know, a um greenhouse to grow uh, herbs and whatnot, like at your restaurant uh, or in one installation, he's putting it in a neighborhood and the neighborhood can grow sort of things that aren't fresh there regularly. You're going to see all sorts of innovation in that space, Uh, you know, improvements to GPS, construction and and imaging. But, and I'll give you the warning and I'll give ARC the warning because I'm sure Kathy Woods takes my, my opinion very seriously. This is all really speculative. Who the winners are, who the losers are, we don't necessarily know. Just because Virgin Galactic was there first doesn't mean it's going to win. And one of the questions we had uh, uh, is, is Seven Investing, and this is from, from Gibran uh, again, uh, is Seven Investing excited about a future SpaceX IPO? Um, I'm not because I don't trust Elon Musk, and <laughs> I understand that, that Tesla wins, but the same difficult-to-work-for CEO spread across a bunch of companies. Uh, no, that probably I'd probably bet on Richard Branson before I would bet on Elon Musk, which I know will not be a popular opinion in the seven investing hallways. Steve, your uh, thoughts there? I, I am. You know, I'll take the opposite side of that coin. Uh, but I, I also don't think we're going to see a SpaceX IPO specifically anytime in the very near future. Uh, more likely, we're going to see something like Starlink, which is another one of those adjacent opportunities as far as like satellite space-based internet access. Uh, Actually, just a couple of months ago, I believe Elon Musk um, tweeted something to the effect when somebody asked him if if SpaceX would IPO. He said, well, probably IPO Starlink uh, in a few years. Uh, But he said, you know, the big caveat is that he wants to wait until uh, revenue growth was more smooth and predictable. 
And uh, public markets, you know, as he pointed out in his tweet, the public market does not like erratic cash flow. I'm a huge fan of small retail investors. We'll make sure they get top priority. You can hold me to that. Starlink is their satellite-based internet uh, section of SpaceX that they would probably spin out an IPO that um, SpaceX could follow. Uh, but like, like you said, there are going to be a lot of winners and, uh, you know, I, I hold a position in Virgin Galactic as well, and I'm excited about what they're doing there. Uh, but you could also see traditional, um, aerospace companies like Lockheed Martin and, uh, you know, Boeing and such kind of getting involved when more companies get this as well. So, um, yeah. So I, I have to say, I am not all that bullish on Starlink because Starlink is solving a problem we have now. That's providing alternate internet access, or in some cases in rural areas, internet access mm-hmm. to markets that either don't have it or only have one provider. Yeah. Here's the problem. I think 6G, and, I, and I'm speaking a little, little jokingly because we're just in the beginning days of 5G, I think there's going to be solutions for internet access that don't require launching multi-million dollar satellites and having thousands of satellites. I think the cell phone companies, the cable, because somebody else is going to figure this out in a way that doesn't take this kind of investment. So I wonder if Starlink is essentially satellite TV. It's something that is going to be technology out of existence before it's even a big deal. Steve, your thoughts there? It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I think what Starlink and uh, and other satellite-based internet providers are trying kind of getting at, you know, Google has... Uh, for example, you know, some loon is one of their projects for like, inter, you know, balloon based internet and stuff. They're trying to cover people who don't have it. And one of the surprising things about internet access uh, around the world is that, you know, I'm looking at uh, some research from Statistia and it says you know, it's only roughly two in three people. It's like 60% of the po- global population has access to the internet, which is bonkers. You think that leaves billions of people without access to the internet because they, you know, it's it's not you know a matter of they just can't afford it or something. It's it's just that it's not there, and uh, that's it's it's kind of stunning to think about uh, that a significant portion of the world uh, doesn't have the internet from a company that is as privileged as I guess we are. So I think that's what they're trying to cover is is completely untouched parts of the globe. So I think there will be a market. I'm not sure I'll be uh, particularly interested in investing in Starlink uh, specifically as an opportunity with so much else out there, but. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch nonetheless. And Steve, it's worth it's worth noting that a lot of the world that does have internet, it's not that great. Because as yeah. you know, I like to travel and I spend a fair amount of time in the Bahamas. And one of the challenges... Oh, and yeah. Yeah, one of the challenges is I can't really host this show unless I seek out like wired office space in whatever, and a lot of countries I could be visiting, but certainly in the Bahamas, it is, I could probably do a podcast with audio, but doing video in a 2G, 3G world is a little bit difficult. Um, so there is opportunities, and there are, I actually have a satellite internet solution that I'm eager to try out uh, the next time I'm able to travel to a place that has poor internet. We're going to take some of your questions. Uh, Lewis Carruthers says, agreed, Dan. Product market fit, much more important than being first to market. I'm not betting against Musk, though. I know. And, and, and it's a bad idea to invest to <laughs> bet against Elon Musk. I can't get past the fact that he kind of seems like a jerk. Uh, and we had some questions earlier about how do you get to our subscriber-only call. So once a month, we do a new member call. We do a subscriber-only call. At that call, we update some of our picks. We take a ton of questions. It's much more intimate than here on 7 Investing Now, where, of course, hundreds of thousands of you 
are watching. It's not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of you are watching and soon to be hundreds of thousands. Uh, so the subscriber calls are much more intimate. You should get an email from us. If you're a subscriber and you're not getting those emails, check your spam folder or just reach out to us at info at seveninvesting.com. We'll take a personal interest. That's one of the best things about this service is someone will solve your problem and there's a decent chance it will be one of the seven advisors or Sam Bailey, our director of marketing. This is not a team that farms things out. We really appreciate that. We're going to seg to what we're watching in a second, but uh, I wanted to take a question. Roman Michael, a regular viewer, uh, says, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about NEO. I am not a fan. Uh, I'm skeptical of Chinese companies in general, uh, but this this to me is it's a momentum play that a lot of people on on social media are are bidding up because hey, it's another EV company, and I don't really know the particulars of it. Um, Steve, your thoughts here? You probably know this space better than yeah, I do. In in for me, it's not. Uh, you know, it could be a pretty decent winner. You know, we're talking about, I think uh, it's market cap last I checked was like 90 billion or so. Um, it, I, I'm not terribly excited about Neo. You know, it might be worth opening a small position just to, to, to watch it. Uh, if anything else, just a, just a little bit, but, um, it, it's, it's not really high on my conviction list at this stage. And, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that it could be a, a big winner, uh, capitalizing on the Chinese, um, you know, opportunity there, but, um, it's also worth noting. I I think shares were trading lower this morning. I saw a a headline because one of the, uh, company's co-founders left to take a job at Foxconn's, uh, Foxconn's new EV business. And, uh, maybe not a great sign, uh, that the founders (laughs) are willing, one of the the co-founders is willing to, to leave for a competitor so soon, but, um, you know, I, I don't have any strong, uh, conviction for Neo at this stage. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'll continue to to kind of passively watch it and see, but uh, I'm not terribly excited. So, B F O F D and S says I'm buying Starlink the day it IPOs. If I can't get into the IPO itself, uh, hey, you don't have to agree with us. That's one of the fun things about Seven Investing is we can throw our ideas out. You can feel differently. We're happy to have that discussion, Steve. We're gonna seg now to what we're watching and something okay. really giant happened last night, or sort of happened. Uh, incoming President Joe Biden unveiled his stimulus program. Uh, he calls it the American Rescue Plan, uh, yeah. or ARP for short. Uh, he probably didn't think of it that way. Uh, and it's $1.9 billion. Why don't you hit the high points, and then we'll dig into some of it. Let's add a few zeros and call it $1.9 trillion. The, uh, Oh, right. $1.9 trillion. $1.9 billion is how much they're spending on on probably posters promoting it. Billion dollars. The uh, No, $1.9 trillion, that is a lot of money. And uh, so the aim, uh, of course, of the American Rescue Plan is to provide additional support for the U.S. economy to hold it over until the impact of the current coronavirus pandemic begins to fade. Uh, you know, we're vaccinating a million people a day here. Uh, and, and should hold it over, but our economy has been thrashed. And uh, we did receive, I think, the last uh, the last stimulus package that went through was about $900 billion. That was itself the second. Uh, but notable things that Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion plan includes is a, a $1,400 direct payment to most Americans. This is in addition to the $600 we just got. 
Um, and recall, you know, this is just what he said uh, he'd do. He, he called last the last payment a down payment uh, and really promised more to come. Uh, there's $400 in weekly federal unemployment uh, insurance benefits uh, through September or unemployment benefits through, yeah, through September. Uh, $350 billion for state and local assistance, $130 billion aimed toward reopening schools, $50 billion for COVID testing, $20 billion for national vaccines. Um, he's making the child tax credit fully refundable temporarily increased to $3,000 per kid or $3,600 for children under six. Um, but you know, one of the things to really note at this point is that this isn't a given, uh, that they will push the, the proposal through as it stands, uh, there, you know, most legislation requires 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, once Biden takes office, they're going to be controlling, uh, 50 seats and, uh, they're going to need some, uh, report, uh, some support from the Republicans here. Um, and there are some pieces that are going to make them push back. You know, there's a provision that would increase the federal minimum, federal minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. And, uh, you know, you're going to get some pushback on that. Um, and uh, we also have to keep in mind, there's another uh, spending package likely next month that's going to focus on jobs and infrastructure uh, to support clean energy. And uh, so there's a lot of money being spent here. And some members of Congress are hesitant to spend it on that scale, um, but they are pushing for bipartisan support. So I suspect the package as we see it today will not go through. Um, they are going to kind of find a, a middle ground somewhere uh, in that so so I see a lot of comments both here and other places on like, what is this going to mean for the market? And there's a lot of the stimulus money going to go into the market. And I, I think that's not looking at it correctly. A healthy economy requires people who live in the country to be healthy. So things like programs that keep people from being evicted, programs that push off having to pay back student loans while you're unemployed, yeah. programs that uh, you know are giving people who need it directly money, that are keeping small businesses afloat. So really, what's good for the market is the floor for the economy. And the challenge here is, look, I, I, I am not in favor of $1,400 payments to people who are working. I don't need a $1,400 payment. I've always thought it's been a bit bizarre that we can sort of, we know who's working and who isn't working. We know who's been impacted by the pandemic, uh, why we haven't made this more targeted. And I do think you're going to see some pushback there. But Steve, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the $15 minimum wage. And I'll take the controversial stand here. I think a blanket $15 minimum wage is a problem. I think in some markets, that's not a living wage. I think some jobs, and I used to run a toy store, the guy who came in and worked four hours a week for me because he loved baseball cards was getting paid eight bucks an hour, and that was just fine. That wasn't his job. I think there needs to be some exceptions here. And you talk about it from a restaurant point of view. This is going to take tip jobs and make them $15 minimums. The restaurant, do they raise prices and tell you we raised prices by 10%? We're now paying this person this much. Adjust your tips accordingly. It gets very, very tricky. And I do think that this should be done on a different basis. I would set a, a floor for living wage in a market, meaning what does it cost to rent a, if you're you know, married with a kid, what does it cost to rent a two-bedroom apartment and eat and pay the utilities? If I'm below that, then I qualify for federal assistance. And if the company I work for is profitable, they should have to pay my benefits. I think that works a lot better than sort of setting these arbitrary numbers because $15 an hour in Montana is probably worth a lot more than $15 an hour here in West Palm Beach. So trying not to be political, trying to just be practical. In some cases, it's too much. In some cases, it's not enough. For some jobs, it's not correct. Steve, your thoughts. 
that's a that's a hard uh, that's a hard topic to take. And uh, yeah, I I think um, that's why you're getting the pushback because those arguments exactly. Um, so I I don't uh, you know I know a lot of small business owners who who vehemently disagree. Uh, that they should be required to pay a minimum wage of $15 an hour. Um, but, you know, personally, uh, I'll, let, I'll let them make those decisions and, uh, and, and see how it plays out. But I, I suspect that's going to be one of the provisions that gets removed from this particular stimulus package as far as... Yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. And I, I do think the goal here is a bipartisan bill. So I think you're going to yep. see the broad strokes of this. Yep. Uh, and then you are going to see some nuance. I do think yep. you'll see action on wages, just probably not as part of this deal. And JE says, uh, what it means for the market short term, who knows, long term, nothing. I don't think it's nothing. Because I do think, you know, if you see something like a minimum wage change, well, that is going to change the dynamics for Papa John's and Domino's and, and companies that aren't paying that $15 an hour. So you are going to see long-term impact, but I agree. For, your, for most companies, for most stocks, it is not going to matter. Uh, and this is something we're going to touch upon this a lot because there's going to be a lot of political back and forth on what changes, what doesn't. There's going to be you know some tax reform, but I keep saying this. It is really important to remember it's 50-50, meaning the Democrats can slightly control the Senate, and it's very close in the House. Major things are not going to happen if they're not bipartisan. So I actually think maybe as a country, we're turning a corner towards being forced to work together, and that's always been a good thing. Uh, and I think that's going to be good for everybody involved. My what we're watching, and I'm going to be quick on this, and Steve, feel free to, as I'm talking, key up some comments that you'd like to, to share or some questions you'd like to answer because they're coming in fast and furious, and I can't keep up. Uh, but here's how the holiday season went. It followed pretty much exactly the patterns I told you it would. <laughs> Spending started earlier. The haves won. So the Targets, Amazon, Best Buy, Walmart, those were the winners. Dick's Sporting Goods, we don't have results from all of these, but uh, we do have Target results. Target had a blockbuster holiday. Uh, digital sales were up 102%. That's just absurd to think about. But store comps, in-store sales were also up 4.2% in November and December. Walmart was up 5% in November. They haven't shared the December numbers. I'm not, I'm not selectively picking which numbers we use here. Amazon hasn't released any numbers, but has already claimed a record holiday season. But the struggling companies, there's not going to be a respite here. M Macy's hasn't reported Q4 sales, but we're trending 20% down. Urban Outfitters dropped by 8.4%. Destination XL, that's, uh, that's shirts for us, us, us larger guys, Steve. You and I larger in, in different directions, <laughs> unfortunately. You're, you're taller. I'm sadly broader. Their sales were off 23.9%. Wow. But here's one that surprises me. Steve, I'm going to let you say this. Uh, and, and Sam, if you could share the graphic after Steve votes. Steve, where do you think mall traffic was in December compared to 2019? What, what percentage down do you think it was? What do I think? Uh, without without looking or Google, and this is this, let me clarify. This is top tier malls. This isn't your already. This is like your Simon Property Group, your Brookfield, uh, you know, your better malls. What without looking at anything, I, I would have thought they'd be flat to down like five percent. That was kind of my thought. Like I saw a fair number of people, but go ahead. <laughs> Sam, you want to share the graphic? We, we did a poll on this. Uh, so most of you thought uh, it was 40% or more, 66.7%. It was actually down about 10%. Uh, numbers have been 
way up and down for malls based on the pandemic. There were points where sales were down that much, but in December, people basically felt they had to go to the mall. They'd done the shopping they could. So, and it's also worth noting that mall traffic in February was higher than at any point it was in 2019. So this narrative that people aren't going to the mall, it's just not true. Now, what's happening at the mall? People aren't buying as much. And especially with the pandemic, you might have previously gone to the mall and you go get a pretzel, you go to the food court, then you browse in every store you ever might shop in. Now, that's not what's happening. You go to the mall and you need to get your wife a gift. So you go to the Apple store, you go to Pandora, you go to the jewelry store, you go to Starbucks, whatever it is your wife wants, you go to that store. Maybe you go one place for yourself you know you go to GameStop and buy a game for yourself and then you leave the mall so we are seeing changing habits but this bodes well for a post-pandemic world uh, where absolutely I think malls the top malls are going to attract customers um, but there are going to be some stores. Look, does Dillard survive this? Probably not. Uh, does Macy's turn the corner? I don't know about that. Uh, Steve before we hit the home stretch do you have any questions or comments you wanted to share? No, uh, not not so much around retail sales. I, I'll say we probably, my family probably contributed five percent of Target's outperformance right there. But we <laughs> we were um, we were there constantly, and uh, and Amazon packages. I mean, it's no surprise uh, that they're thriving. Uh, through all of this, so some of those bigger, strong retailers getting stronger, and uh, that's I, really what we expected. I essentially live in the Target parking lot. Uh, many of my neighbors have a Target view. I'm four tenths of a mile from a Target. When we finish this, I'm going to be walking to Target to go to Starbucks to get some coffee. Uh, so those companies, and it's not about the pandemic. It's about execution. Best Buy executed incredibly well. When you couldn't go yeah. in their stores, they found ways to do curbside pickup. They found good things to do. JE, I appreciate the comment. It's more of you and more of you is good. Uh, yeah, we're stretched thin as a team today. Matt Cochran is dealing with, with a family emergency. Uh, we had two other calls. So usually the Friday show is like four or five of us. Today, it is just Steve and I, but we're going to do something ridiculous for the home stretch here. This is one is I spend a lot of my time looking for stories for this show. Uh, and I just found a lot of stories that I went, really? Like, that's a thing? And I, so for the home stretch, we're going to start with uh, Steve, Costco is shutting down all of its photo centers. When is the last time you took a photo on film? Uh, <laughs> a long time ago. But they, they also do the digital photos. And, and I, I remember seeing our, our photo center disappear. And I was a little sad because we used it a lot for their prints. But uh, you know, we order, uh, they're still going to, you know, print photos and everything, but, uh, we got our daughter or our daughter got a Polaroid from one of her grandmas actually for Christmas. And she's very excited about that. So, uh, retro coming back, but film cameras are, I mean, all so, so, and this is odd to shut down on Valentine's day, but as of Valentine's day, here's what Costco's not going to offer ink refills, the ability to take passport photos, photo restoration, and a service that transferred home videos from VHS to DVD or USB. These are all services that exist online. There's still a market for these things. It, Costco should not be taking physical space. And this is a positive for Costco. This is Costco saying, these are dying industries. Uh, let's use this space for something else. But Steve, I'm not a fan, but... Uh, my, my former colleague and, and good friend, Emily Flippin, we did multiple shows where we talked about the Taco Bell menu changes. And there was oh, a point yeah. 
where Emily was crestfallen that they were getting rid of the Mexican pizza. And I asked her the question. I'm like, well, they still have all those ingredients. Could you just <laughs> order something else, but just like specify the ingredients in a way so you basically get the Mexican pizza? But what you could not get was the Taco Bell potato. But that's not going to be true soon. Steve, have you ever had a Taco Bell potato? I have no idea what this is. Yeah, the the the. I mean, I love their like fries and everything, but yeah, I, I love everything from Taco Bell. I could eat there every day if it didn't make me feel horrible about myself. But I I love Taco Bell so much. So so last year when they slimmed down their menu, they got rid of cheesy Perfect. Fiesta potatoes and the spicy potato soft taco. This actually didn't meet well with uh with vegetarians because this took away a vegetarian option. But those things are coming back, and I bring this story up because. I think you're going to see a return to more normal menus. So one of the things that happened in the pandemic is a lot of companies slimmed down their menus. A lot of food providers said, yeah. okay, let's uh, not that many people order the pork sandwich. Not that many people get a side of uh, potato wedges. Let's get rid of those things for now. The big one, and I'll ask you, Steve, McDonald's got rid of all-day breakfast. And they got rid of all-day breakfast because – the franchisees don't like it. It's a little bit tricky to make a sausage patty next to a burger. And to me, as a, I'm not really a customer. I don't go to McDonald's that often, but if I ever did, it would be for all day breakfast. It's horrifying that they're putting the need of their franchisee over the need of their customer. That seems kind of not how you should run a business. Yeah. uh, I guess that's, that's kind of a fine line to watch, but if you have your franchisees revolting, you're going to have subpar service and, and uh, yeah, that that was the trouble I think with with uh, McDonald's to begin with when they uh, implemented all day breakfast was it was very difficult because they're working with limited space and you had to have separate grills and and uh, yeah that that was tough. Um, but yeah, you you do need to keep uh, your employees and in the case of it, McDonald's, your franchisees happy. And uh, I, I think it was probably the right move. Uh, it might cost them. Uh, it might cost them some some sales, though, and that's something to keep in mind. I, I get it during the pandemic. I don't see you how how you don't reverse it. Uh, you know, I want a McGriddle, and I want a McGriddle now. Uh, yeah. and actually, I would, I would love a McGriddle now if anyone wants to bring by a McGriddle. Um, yeah. It's CES right now. This might be the least we've ever talked about CES during CES season, but uh, Toto, a company that makes high-end toilets, They've debuted a health analyzing toilet. So, Steve, here's what the toilet does. You use the toilet for the things you use a toilet for. And it tells you, hey, Steve, maybe you need a little more vitamin C. Ooh, you're a little bit dehydrated. Is this something you want from your toilet, Steve, forgetting the fact that a toilet normally costs like $200 and this costs like thousands of dollars? Is this something you'd want your toilet to do? No. (laughs) <laughs> that's so it's just so weird to me i mean it's it's literally analyzing the, what you propel from your body to to tell you about it but uh hey you know there might be a market for it and maybe it'll be a thing 20 years from now and we'll wonder how we ne- we ever lived without it but this isn't something like where have you been all my life like that's just hmm no i feel like it's a good idea that no one would want i don't want my relationship with my toilet to be a dialogue like like <laughs> that, that that feels like it should really be a one-way relationship. Uh, J.E. says, <laughs> I stopped going to McDonald's when they stopped the all-day breakfast. I agree. Uh, you do what your customers want. And if I want a McFlurry at 8 in the morning or a sausage McMuffin at, at uh, 
10 at night, I think they should fill those needs. We know they have it inside. Just get the stuff out. It's not that difficult. Yeah. Steve, there's one more here we're going to share. We skipped a couple, but we're, we're yeah. running a little bit long. Um, am I finally going to get a flying car? I, I was a kid in the 80s. I, <laughs> I saw the Jetsons, and not only did George Jetson have a flying car, it folded up into a briefcase. Am I getting a flying car soon? Is seven investing going to be two? No, not exactly. The uh, um, so GM actually rallied earlier this week. Uh, you might have noticed when they unveiled an electric van and a flying car prototype. Uh, they they said they've actually designed both vehicles, and, but what they showed off uh, to investors and what they showed off to um, uh, people that saw their presentation was a simulated computer render. Um, but they, they do say they've designed both vehicles and, uh, it, it's really interesting because it's a, it's a single passenger, uh, prototype that would basically, uh, be for high density urban environments. So you could fly from rooftop to rooftop or something. So you hop in, it's almost like, you know, stepping on a drone. Uh, so really, really interesting. And you think, well, how niche is that? Uh, but Morgan Stanley actually stepped out and, uh, and asserted that the quote unquote autonomous urban aircraft industry could be worth 1.5 trillion by the year 2040. So, you know, we're talking about something that's almost two decades away. Uh, but you know, that's a, it's a possibility. And I think it's something that, that would be interesting, you know, but, uh, I, uh, let, let, let me jump in here. It could be, but it won't be. Have it, you ever it's, seen it? It's terrifying. Like think of the, the, the crashes and you know things that would happen like that. You know, I'm sure they'd have a parachute or something built in, but people uh, get hurt on scooters. <laughs> You're not, first of all, they, they, they look like, it looks like a stand up version of a star Wars speeder bike. This is not going to be how you get from your office to the Starbucks in Manhattan. This is never going to happen. You know, we talk a lot about autonomous vehicles, and I'm of the belief that autonomous vehicles are going to happen in closed loop systems first. So they're going to happen on college campuses, Disney World, maybe New York City closes to car traffic and becomes autonomous vehicles only. I think we're years away from that. The idea that we're going to let, you know, Joe office worker strap on his helmet and go take a flying car. It just, it absolutely, this is not going to happen. We thank so many of you for watching us today, for bearing with us over, for some of you, three hours. Uh, for, for those of you here at seven investing now, uh, we are off on Monday and Wednesday is inauguration day. So we're going to go at 11 o'clock on Wednesday because we don't want our audience taking away from the inauguration. And of course, we know you choose to watch us over anything else. We also know that's <laughs> not true at all. And it's the inauguration and all sorts of terrible things might happen. So of course, we're going to be on at 11 and we're going to do a quicker than normal show. We'll get you out of there by 1130, 1135. Sam Bailey, it is now time to hit our finisher. If you could please share the graphic, I forgot to put it in my script. What percentage of retail shopping will be online in 2023? 5.2% um, of you said less than 20%. 25.3% said 20 to 30%. 30 to 40 said 29.2%. And 40.2% said 50% or more. That's two years from now. Steve, do you know what percentage of shopping was digital? Retail shopping was digital during the absolute height of the pandemic. Take a guess at it. I would guess um, 19%. That is pretty much accurate. Um, it? It's always better if you say something that's wrong. Yeah. So 40% 
is preposterous. In 2023, we will probably be somewhere in the low 20s. We may not even get there because here's the reality. I like shopping in stores. People like shopping in stores. As convenient as it is to get groceries delivered, you know what's also convenient? Seeing your meat and your produce before you get it. Now, those things can improve and things like digital tailors and better measuring, that's, that is going to help some traditional clothing sale go online, but I don't care how great it gets. Like You can use that tool that shows what the Peloton will look like in your living room. That's not the same when like you're trying on a suit. So if you tell me it gets to 30% in 2025 and that's the max, maybe that could happen. But I think it's going to be a lot like digital books where everyone assumed digital books were going to end physical books. And it actually topped out at about 50-50 and it stayed 50-50 for a really long time. My wife has a Kindle. Uh, she is loath to use it. She is much more likely to just read a traditional book, whereas I don't even use my Kindle anymore. I read on my phone. Those are preferences and the same with shopping. I use all those services. Heck, I've got a gold belly order from Arthur Bryant on its way today. So Kansas City uh, barbecue coming towards me today. That's going to replace a shopping trip, but it's not going to change how I fundamentally shop. Steve, any thoughts here? I think uh, one of the things that we should really keep in mind is is that how is how low e-commerce penetration still is, and and that uh, how high it, it it goes in the next decade or so remains to be seen. Uh, but I think that also helps answer the question of a lot of people who are skeptical: uh, how much bigger can Amazon get? You know, how much bigger can these companies become uh, who are focusing e-commerce leaders? Uh, how you know how much more market share can they take? A lot is the answer. Uh, so they can get a lot larger because e-commerce still represents uh, a, a fraction of of on you know overall retail sales. And uh, there, there's a lot of room to run there. Uh, but I also you know don't think we're going to be hitting 100% anytime in the near future. Uh, there is there's still a huge uh, chunk of retail sales that happens offline, and I think people tend to overestimate that. So it's something to keep in mind as e-commerce continues to grow. If you want to tell me the hybrid number grows significantly, Amazon's biggest growth ahead of it might be brick and mortar. Adding thousands of physical grocery stores might add more dollars to Amazon's bottom line than they grow in terms of e-commerce. And there's just a lot of stuff you like to see. Uh, and I think that's going to continue. So we're not going to see the end of stores. We're going to see the end of badly run stores. Uh, you know, so, you know, we talked about it before. I'd worry if I was Dillard's or Macy's or Destination XL. I would not worried if I was uh, Five Below or Ollie's or TJ Maxx or any of these really well run retail companies. With that, it's Friday. It is a football weekend. Very excited. Steve, uh, as we close out the show, I'm just going to say, ask one question, a sports related question. Sure. Were you shocked the Jets hired someone that wasn't a terrible choice? Like I had joked on Twitter that <laughs> after the Jags hired hired Urban Meyer, that the Jets were going to hire a Twitter parody account, Suburban Meyer. Uh, but they hired Robert Sala, who was one of the top picks. Were you shocked here? I, I was surprised. That was unusual. Yes. I'll say I was shocked. Yeah. I thought the Jets maybe would rehire Rich Kotite, uh, maybe maybe <laughs> bring back the ghost of Weeb Eubank in uh, – <laughs> Anyway, I'm teasing all of my Jets fans. We thank you for watching. We will not be back Monday. We will see you Wednesday, an hour earlier at 11 a.m. Thank you for watching.
A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.